I want to share this morning some secrets to church growth. You know, authors and speakers have made millions and millions of dollars discussing church growth. I know of churches that have brought in consultants to sit down with their membership and survey the community and find out what the community wants and what the church wants and how to connect the two. I know of churches that have used books like the Purpose Driven Church and they use that book as a model for church growth. And in fact, when I was searching online, I looked at Amazon.com and I got over a hundred pages of results when I typed in the search term church growth. Church growth is a big business. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that we don't need a consultant. We don't need a book. We don't need a high-priced guest speaker to tell us how to grow this church. Because God gives us a pattern in His Word of how to grow the church. But here's the catch. I don't think you're going to like it. I don't think you're going to like what the Bible tells us about how to grow the church. But just keep an open mind as we go through. Turn your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2 if you want to follow along. I'm going to read extensively. I'm going to read the whole chapter, in fact, from Acts chapter 2, so you may want your own text. Uh, The verses will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, but a lot of people want to follow along when it's that lengthy uh, in, in their own Bible. You know, in our fellowship... We say we seek to follow the pattern of the first century church. And I think that's a great goal. I think that's a worthy goal. I think it's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, Acts chapters 1 and 2 really tell us about the early formation of that early church. It's really the pattern. And if we want to follow the pattern of the first century church, I would suggest to you that it starts with the text of Acts chapter 2. So turn with me Acts 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing or a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears uh, them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Now, a lot of people get bogged down with these verses and ignore what's going to come later. Yes, there are a lot of supernatural occurrences here that are hard for us to understand. But I don't think it's as important what happened as why it happened. See, God was sending all these supernatural signs to seal the formation of his church, to let everybody know that what was going on here with these people 
were his doing. In fact, you know, you remember the 50 days between Jesus' death and the day of Pentecost, there were a lot of miraculous occurrences. The earth went dark and shook when Jesus died on the cross. You remember that? Uh, you remember that after his resurrection, people said that they saw dead saints walking through the streets. Uh, and now here we have wind and fire rushing through a house and all the disciples start speaking in foreign languages. And I would suggest to you that this grouping of miraculous signs are very similar. Joe and I have talked about this uh, in the college class. They're very similar to what happened in Egypt at the Exodus. You remember that Aaron's staff turned into a snake when he threw it down, and then God sent the ten plagues to show his, his uh, superiority over nature. And then he parted the Red Sea and let the children of Israel walk through and then uh, put it back and to swallow up the Egyptians. The purpose of those miracles in the Exodus are the same, I believe, as the purpose of all these supernatural things you see here. That is to mark these people, for God to say, these are my people and I condone what's going on here. So while it's fun to discuss what a tongue of fire might look like, I have visions in my head of what a tongue of fire might look like coming and setting on somebody's head, uh, or while it's fun to have these these theological discussions about were they speaking one language and everybody understood them differently or were there 12 people speaking 12 different languages. That's really not the point, I think, of this discussion in Acts chapter 2. So let's read on. Uh, Peter is about to give this sermon. I'm going to read it in its entirety because it's a phenomenal sermon, beginning in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I think that was Peter's attempt at a joke there. Uh, No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on earth that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. 
exalted to the right hand of God, who has received from the Father his, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Christ, both Lord and Christ. You see this very powerful, very direct sermon that Peter preached? Now I want you to get the context of this. This is, as I like to call it, impetuous Peter. This is the guy who just 50 or 60 days before had cut off a guy's ear and had denied Christ. This is the guy who is preaching this very direct sermon. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. For now, let's see what the people's response was to Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an amazing response to this very direct sermon. They didn't say, hey, Peter, you stepped on my toes. They didn't say, well, I could see how maybe I'm a little at fault here. They said they were cut to the heart, and they immediately asked what they should do about their condition. And then 3,000 people responded. That's a huge response to this sermon. Let's see, uh, let's finish out the, the, the chapter here with verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, so what does this chapter tell us about the church today? And more importantly, what does it tell us about how to grow the church today? Because there ought to be something here if 3,000 people responded all at once and all these other people were adding, added to the church daily. You could say, well, Peter was just gave the best sermon in the history of sermons. And I'll give you, it was a very powerful sermon. But I've been sitting here for about 10 years. And I've heard Randy preach a lot of powerful sermons over 10 years. And I can't remember a day where more than three people went forward and asked to be baptized, much less 3,000. So there's got to be something more than just it was a good sermon. So I want to look today at four keys to church growth that I see from this chapter. And as we look at each one, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself honestly, do some introspection, ask yourself honestly three questions. One, how well does the church, and by the church I mean the global church, do these things that we're going to talk about. 
Secondly, how well does this congregation, how well does West 7th Street Church of Christ do with these things? And third, and maybe most importantly, how do I do these things? How well am I at these, at these four keys personally? The first key to church growth that I see in Acts chapter 2 is passion. I don't see any lukewarm Christians in this chapter, do you? I don't see anybody who's just kind of mailing it in. First, let's look at how the apostles were described. Verse 4 said they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And later in that chapter, we find out that their behavior was so unusual, so flagrant, that people thought they were drunk. These aren't shrinking violets here. These aren't the kind of people that come in, ride as church is starting, sit at the back row, slump down the pew, and say, my God is an awesome ways, right? I mean, that, that's, not, that's not who we're talking about. These people are so excited that they can't help themselves. I see a lot of passion and a lot of excitement here. Just look at some of the phrases that Peter uses in his sermon. He says, I tell you confidently. He says, we are all witnesses. He says, be assured. And then Acts tells us he warned them and that he pleaded with them. This wasn't a sermon by some guy who was just doing his job and putting on a good face on Sunday morning. This was a sermon that was preached by a guy, uh, a guy who couldn't help himself but preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It oozed out of his very being. And I think we get that from this sermon. He was passionate about his subject, and everybody could immediately tell it. Because just look at how the church responded to this sermon. It says they were devoted. It said they were filled with awe. It said they had glad and sincere hearts. That they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all people. See, Peter's passion for the message, the apostles' passion for this message, carried over to all the people. So here are the questions. How passionate is the Lord's church today comparing ourselves to Peter in that first church? How passionate are we here at West Seventh? Do we warn and plead with people? Maybe most importantly, how passionate are you about your Christianity? Are you devoted? Do you have a glad and sincere heart? See, if we want the church to grow... I think the first step is we have to be passionate about the message that we're teaching. Second key to church growth that I see in Acts chapter 2 is time. Let's look at how Luke describes the first century church. Just after Jesus' ascension over in chapter 1, look at what he said, Acts 1, 12-14, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You'd see that they said, it says here that they prayed constantly. It's not they had an opening prayer, a closing prayer, and called it a week. They were in constant prayer together. Now let's look over at Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. 
We see a lot about time over here. That's passages we just read. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added their number daily, those who were being saved. The picture of the church I get here is one that is completely devoted. They're together every day. They're studying together. They're eating together. They're sharing their lives together. And notice the result of that sort of time. It said people were added every day. See, that's what happens when we spend daily time together. People see that. So I'm about to step on some toes. If you're visiting here, you can ignore me. I am not the normal preacher. I just sit down here. Um, and so everybody here who's been here for a long time knows, oh, that's just Philip, I can listen to him or not listen to him, whatever. Um, but I'm going to step on some toes and say, if the only time that you are together with other Christians, spending time discussing things of the spiritual nature, praying, sharing your lives, is in this building, you're not following the first century model. Whoa. Big, big words there. Convicting words. Do you really mean that I'm supposed to give up my own private time? Yes. That's what, that's what Acts 2 says. If we're going to follow the first century church, isn't that what it says? That we're to spend time together with one another, sharing daily? And just look at the results. People were added daily. So if we're really committed to growing the church or this congregation of the church, if we're really committed to following the example of the first century church that we say we are, then we simply must spend more time together. So, how's the church, generally speaking, through this? How, how are we doing with spending time with one another as the church? Or how are we doing at West 7th, spending time with our brothers and sisters? How much time do you personally spend with fellow Christians during the week, talking about spiritual things, praying together. I think the growth of the church is directly related to the time we spend with one another. Third point, third thing that I see in Acts chapter 2 that leads to church growth is generosity. First, they were generous with their time. We've, we've talked about that already. But they were also generous with their possessions, with all that they had. Acts 2, Acts 2, 44 and 45 says this, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. You notice that it doesn't say they asked about what people's needs were. They started a program because they knew each other. <laughs> they were spending time together. They knew what needs each other had. See, nobody in the church had an unmet need because God's family knew about it and they immediately took care of it. So, how's the church doing with this today? Is the church known as being generous? How does West Seventh do? How about you? Do you give to anyone that you know that has need? 
I ask this question, how much would this community be changed if we were generous like this? If the community, the people outside these walls, knew that if they came here, they had every physical need met. They didn't have to spend a night on the street. They didn't have to go a day without eating. How much different would this church look if we were generous like this? I'm going to suggest to you, we'd have to tear this down and build a bigger church to hold everybody. We wouldn't have enough pews and enough chairs in this building if we were doing this. If we were generous like this church was generous, the flood of people would be overwhelming. One last point, one last thing I think we need to learn from the first century church in order to grow the church today, and that's transformation. I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. Look at who one of the ringleaders of this new church was. Peter. You know, Jerusalem was a relatively small community. It's not like the city we know of today. Think more like uh, Mount Pleasant or Santa Fe or something. Some, some small group of people where everybody kind of knew everybody and knew what everybody else was doing. So a lot of these people had probably already heard the story about the guy who took out his sword and assaulted a police officer, right? Uh, or maybe some of them were sitting around the fire with Peter when they heard him deny Jesus three times. Or maybe some of them had heard Peter arguing with the other disciples, the other apostles, about who was going to be the most important in Jesus' earthly kingdom. That's the Peter they knew. But this Peter was different. This Peter was preaching a powerful and direct sermon. Maybe that's why they thought he was drunk. Because they'd never seen this side of him before. This was so different than the Peter that they knew. So he wasn't just altered a little bit. He was completely transformed. He was a brand new person. The old Peter was dead, and the Holy Spirit had created a new Peter. So, how's the church do with transformation? The church worldwide. What about West Seventh? Do we have people who are totally transformed? What about you? And this may be the most important question. Are you totally transformed? Have you been totally transformed and are completely different from your old life. Would people that knew you five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago recognize you today? Not physically, but recognize the things you're talking about. How do you talk? What are the things you say? What do you talk about? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Have you been totally transformed by the Holy Spirit or have you just let God take your rough edges off. See, I think people realized how totally and drastically different Peter was, and that was really attractive. So how do we hope to change the church, to grow the church, to attract more people to Jesus if Jesus is only making minor modifications in our lives? Nobody wants that. They want to be different. They want something that looks Different, something that drastically improves their life. It's time that we allow God and His Spirit to totally transform us. So I've shared four things from Acts 2 that I think will radically change the church. To live our lives with passion, to spend more time together, to be generous toward our fellow man, and to allow God's Spirit to totally transform us. 
And I hope as you went along, you were thinking to yourself, you know, I did a pretty good job at that. That's not what you were saying, right? I mean, maybe on some of them. But I think what you were really saying is the same thing that I said when I studied this. Boy, there are a lot of things I could do a lot better with. I am really, really falling short in, in living up to the standard that we see here in the first century church. So the question for you this morning is, do you really want to follow the example of the first church? Is that what you want in your life? And maybe for you, the first step in following that example is simply putting on Jesus. And just like Peter preached 2,000 years ago, if you've been cut to the heart, the response is very simple. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That message hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. But maybe you've taken that first step, but your Christianity lacks passion. Or maybe you're not devoting the kind of time to your fellow Christian that you need to. Or you know you're not as generous as you need to be. Or maybe you've resisted for a long time God's total transformation. If you need prayers, if you need to repent and be baptized, or if you need any support from this church, feel free to come forward as we stand and sing this song.